Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back the Hollywood crypt to review Momoro Oshii's Ghost in the Shell. (laughs) And I have to just laugh at the crypt because, like... (laughs) I think it threw Brazil in between Ghost in the Shell and Akira to prevent us <laughs> from making direct comparisons. But like one movie wasn't enough time to not sit here and be like, okay, time to make direct comparisons between these two movies. But we could compare it to Brazil too, because there's a lot thematically the same. Yes, absolutely. We've been going through a heavy theme of, you know, future dystopias and, and I guess anarchy. Hell yeah. Frick yeah. <laughs> Frick? Frick yeah. Frick? Frick yeah. You know, Andy, we put E on all of our podcasts. You can say the F bomb. Yeah, that was more of a spirit of it. When I when I mean fuck yeah, I'll say fuck yeah, don't worry. <laughs> okay. All right. You know, it's funny though, I think Ghost in the Shell is maybe the least dystopian out of any of the most recent movies we've watched quality of life seemed pretty okay until you got your memories erased. I I was, I was going to say there, there, (laughs) there's a man who undergoes some severe trauma because his brain is messed with and he has memories of a daughter that he doesn't actually have. That's true. But I mean, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a unfortunate Saturday night for any of us. For those of oh, you who Andy. skipped the movie, um, Ghost in the Shell is the story of Major Motoko Kusanagi, a cyborg counterterrorism officer living in the fictional Newport City in far off 2029. Kusanagi works as part of a government agency called Section 9, who is hunting down a hacker known only as the Puppet Master, who is able to erase people's memories to manipulate them into achieving his ends. As the hunt continues, Motoko becomes obsessed with the question of whether or not she is really human and if her memories are real or not. The search for the Puppet Master uncovers a government conspiracy that Motoko and the rest of Section 9 must race against the clock to resolve. And so, I mean, right off the bat, you know, I I talk about direct comparisons to Akira. I feel like there's a couple of things that are totally directly like oh my god this made me think of akira but there are a pretty decent number of differences like well for one thing like ghost in the shell felt almost a lot more stereotypical anime in a couple different ways Mm. like akira takes place in tokyo uh, 2019 whereas you know ghost in the shell is in a made-up fictional place newport city and you know they bump Mm -hmm. it back a couple of more years, 2029. It's still not necessarily the future um, for (laughs) us sitting here now, but it's not, you know, Akira, we were making jokes about how, oh, this is present day and ghosts. There's still a little bit of leeway there. I mean, you know, the other thing we talked about is like, it does seem a little bit better of a place to be than the world of Mm -hmm. Akira. You know, this isn't, some city that is constantly getting nuked. There's just, yeah. you know, cyber terrorism, which, I mean, there's cyber terrorism nowadays. Ghost in the Shell was made eight years after, and there were, you know, a couple of advancements in animation. But it's kind of mm-hmm. funny. I was sitting here thinking to myself, you know, Ghost in the Shell is a beautiful movie in its own right, a couple of scenes particularly, but it didn't really touch the level of just stunning that Akira did from an animation standpoint for me. I agree. The one, one of the similarities I found was that the first scene of both movies kind of sets, we're in a city. Here's where we are. And Akira does it really beautifully. Yeah. Whereas ghost in the shell is more, here's the city. And granted the main character, uh, the major falls down and that's a very cool shot um and sequence but 
for the rest of the establishment of setting, it's really not as stunning as Akira is. Yeah, and you know, just Akira had you know its its famous record breaking amount of frames and. You know, it was. It seemed a lot more of a complex and hectic production schedule. Ghost in the Shell, as far as I could tell, was made a little bit more standardly. Not even counting the fact that again, it was eight years later, and we had uh, a lot more CGI at our disposal than they did when they made Akira. But it just, all in all, it it looked cheaper is the wrong word, but it looked a little less poppy. A little, a little yeah. more cartoonish, a little less, a little slower in the animation. Yeah. And then there's the problem of the opening scene, which we aren't able to connect to right. the rest of the plot of the movie until probably three quarters of the way through the film. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, Akira starts off with a nuke and, you know, clearly that's hard to relate to the rest of the stuff, but. It also resets the playing field for Ghost in the Shell. The opening scene to be the um, the raid on the hotel that Section Nine is doing. It's like you said. It's it's very cool and it's very awesome to see the shot of Major as she's like listening into all of the radio waves of the city and then put on her her stealth suit and jump off a building and blow <laughs> off a guy's head, but. Yeah to go from that into the opening credit sequence of the movie and then to come out of the opening credit sequence and like, okay, we're starting the movie off proper. Now all that stuff that happened, it looked really cool. And it was like kind of sort of tangentially plot related, but we, we could have skipped that and it wouldn't have affected the movie at all. That was pretty jarring the way it's like, Hey, we got something cool for you, but it has nothing to actually do with the movie. And also her stealth suit that you talk about. <laughs> she's she's naked, or you think she's naked, until they say thermo camouflaging. And I wrote, thermo optical camouflage sounds like a silly excuse for, we want boobs in the opening shot for reasons. Because, yeah, yeah, they, because they definitely because why? do. <laughs> you, you know, um... I, I use this term with some trepidation, but that's another example as to why it is very stereotypically anime in a way that Akira necessarily <laughs> wasn't, because the TNA is heavily on display there. Social justice, one, two, three! Woo, woo. I wanna be PC! Woo, woo. It's just the way to be for me! And, and it's... It, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's gratuitous. It, it, it truly is gratuitous. I can almost defend the idea of the stealth suit. And because, like, so, yeah, so Major takes off her jacket and, you know, she's in this beyond skin tight garment that is just a shade off her skin color. And you want to look at objectively, there is no reason why it couldn't be black or gray or chartreuse or mauve. And instead it is like, you know, one degree off of her skin color. So that I, I think so that you can make the defense of, oh, she's not really naked when she might as well be. <laughs> I can yeah. almost defend that. But through and through ghost in the shell is a movie with so much robot boob. <laughs> and once I asked myself the question, wait, they're all robots. Why do they need nipples? I could not <laughs> stop thinking about that. <laughs> well, and it's, it's pretty pointed that there's only, only the women wear the nude suit shell thing. Only the women have thermo-optical camouflage. We never see a man with thermo-optical camouflage. Would we see ding-dongs aplenty if, you know, one of the male characters donned the same suit? We don't you know. We assume. don't ever get to find out. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, because the, um, the only time the Section 6 operatives do go in with the stealth suit, you never see them out of it. You only ever see them in, like, thermo-gear 
And when you see the the, the infrared view it, uh, image of the guys, you, yeah, you don't see anything dangling there. So presumably <laughs> they don't have bits. And, but yet we need our, our robot women to have, you know, full breasts and not even With just... Nipples. Yeah, exactly. That like it it really boils down to the nipples. It's the whole is it art or porn debate, and and you know the the inclusion of nipples is what makes it really male gazy in a way where even if like they were full boobs without nipples, well, I mean, shit, Sailor Moon kind of had that going on, but there weren't. It wasn't fully quote unquote naked breasts. I don't believe it. Thermoptic camouflage. Yeah. And... Yeah, there's a lot in this movie that's that's questionable, but let's let's talk about another topic before we dive <laughs> Before we dive back that. into the boobs. So you you said that Akira is about human potential and Ghost in the Shell is about what it means to be human. Yeah, and I I really think that's the case. You know, um, uh, nobody who was involved in Akira was involved in the process of Ghost in the Shell. And I feel like these movies are very heavily linked together for a bunch of different reasons. You know, we just spent 10 minutes making a big joke about that on, on this very show. But in actuality, you know, aside from the fact that they are cyberpunk-ish, futuristic anime stories, um, there really isn't all that much to compare the two, I don't think. And part of that goes into their thesis statements. You know, Akira is all about human potential with, you know, Akira... Akira being the culmination of that. And we do genetic tests on people to unlock psychic powers. And it's all about like what's going on in you and ghost in the shell is all about like, really like at what point do you stop being human? Which is a a question that science fiction has been asking for as long as it's been around. You know, if I put in contacts I'm covering my eyes with something. Well, why wouldn't I, you know, if I had the means, would I just put in robot eyes? If I had even more of the means, would I just go into a different body that could see at what point do advancements lock away humanity? And I think that is absolutely what ghost is about. Um, the movie that I kept being reminded of was her, the Joaquin Phoenix, Scarjo. Because that movie kind of deals with the same thing in a, in a different way, but it contemplates, you know, why, why are AIs not human when they can feel and talk philosophy and have brilliant discussions about beauty and art and love and have sex? How, how are they different from, from humans? And that movie really grapples with that idea of when AIs and humans interact. And I think this movie kind of follows it in a different pattern. Right. Because, you know, it's kind of it's it's Motoko's driving motivation throughout the whole movie is the question of am I even alive? How would I know in this world where memory can be rewritten and you know they 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 talk about the ghost in the movie the ghost in the shell Mm -hmm. presumably and you know really i think the the reason they use that terminology is because it sounds cool more than anything yeah because i found myself really wanting a definition of what the ghost was after seeing it, a oh my couple, gosh, same. Right, absolutely. It is like one of the things that I think the movie, at least, really has a hard time defining. It seems like the ghost is like your soul, your soul. Yeah, that's what I got too. Your yeah, your mental culmination of your being. So we're running around in this world, taking people's souls. And putting them in a hundred percent robot bodies, 
and you know major motoko's entire thing is okay i only have your word for it that i'm even a person and that's not mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and that's why like that's why ghost is about the nature of humanity itself well and there's this whole scene where she and uh batu her kind of bodyguard control Partner, general yeah yeah they're out on a boat and she's swimming and they're talking about well how you know we get replaced we have an updated manual check we go in and we get our levels checked basically like doing maintenance on a on a car and she mentions she doesn't really know what's in there and she talks about how at the end of the day what part is her and then some part of her this isn't really well explained until the very very end some part of her asks asks a question of what are we but it's explained at the end of the movie that that wasn't her somehow right that was so the puppet master itself was like even at that point hacking into her and kind of just using her as a, a voice box um, yeah because that, that you know that's the whole other part of this equation and, and the the culmination of the movie is the puppet master and the big twist if you care um stop now <laughs> but the big twist is that they spend the whole movie thinking that the puppet master is this person this this guy who is this brilliant computer hacker and you come to realize the puppet master is a program that was created by section six and gained sentience and it wasn't mm-hmm. until it, it it gained its own sentience that it started doing things of its own accord which is why you know section six made up the story about the puppet master being a hacker and that's the whole government conspiracy but the puppet master being a computer being is smart enough to like really tackle these questions of what does it mean to be alive what does it mean to exist i am a computer entity and yet i am alive so how is my stance of reproduction different Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, kind of beautifully, the whole thing is the the climax of the movie is the artificial reproduction of a new life form between the puppet master and Motoko. Right. And it, this movie has some interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's all just very heavy philosophical stuff. Absolutely. It, it, I agree. It's interesting. It has a lot of questions around ethics. When you said, you know, heavy philosophical, it makes me think of the question of of cyber hacking. The the things that they're cyber hacking are people. So there's there's one instance we mentioned earlier, a garbage man, his memories are hacked and he has to deal with the consequent trauma of unremembering made up memories. And in the culminating scene that you just talked about, Andy, there's also this shell that the puppet master is living in, and that shell gets mutilated by the opposing governments, by Section 9. And that shell had no no uh, say about it because of who the shell was housing. Right. It, it does get into these heavy debates and and it forces the viewer to then think about those exact things you know the garbage truck sequence that's one of my favorite parts of the movie as a whole the Mm. garbage truck and then the subsequent uh criminal chase scene afterwards like it's just such a it's a very fun nuanced thing that the you know the writers of the movie created where you almost need to watch it a second time to really understand what's going on. You know, this garbage man who's driving around the city with his partner unwilling, unknowingly like 
hacking into all of these different government computer lines and the whole time thinking that he's doing this so that I can see my wife and kid again. And, and, you know, the bit where he shows the picture to his garbage man partner who just doesn't give a shit, doesn't even look at the picture, which is so crucial because if he'd looked at the picture, he would have seen that the guy was standing there by himself. Like, like I love that. You know, the, yeah. the uh, Momoroshi and the rest of the writers really throw some hard stuff at you. But also at other times in the movie, you know, they really craft this fun detective action story of, of having to figure out exactly what's going on. And I just ate that up. Yeah. Especially since you can kind of figure it out as it's happening. Like, oh, he's being used somehow to hack because he mentions, the garbage man mentions, Oh yeah, someone taught me how to do this to get back at my to get back at my ex or something. He says something yeah, to that effect. Yep. And it becomes very clear, oh, that person was absolutely using you to kind of break in the system. I bet it's the puppet master. But then it unfolds even a layer further and he's this garbage man is has made up memories of a wife and kid that don't exist and it's heartbreaking, but it's really elegant crafting. Hey, sorry, pal. My last partner got busted working as an illegal alien. Couldn't speak English, but he was a lot better than you are. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about layers. It really is just layers because, you know, the Puppet Master for the first three quarters of the movie is our villain, is our bad guy. And, like... It, it you know it's only in the last quarter that there's the twist that the puppet master is a computer program so on the one hand like that changes the garbage man sequence because it's like you know this isn't some nefarious human being that has corrupted another innocent person's memories it is this it, it it's a computer program you know it is a a computer program that is doing these, I mean, frankly, awful things to innocent bystanders, getting, you know, false memories implanted. Uh, when they tell the guy, he's like, are the memories ever going to go away? And the policemen are like, maybe we don't, I mean, maybe not like that's awful. That's horrible. And so on the one hand, you're sitting here being like, Oh wait, Oh my God. That was like a computer program. That wasn't even a person. But at the same time, in that last twist is when the puppet master becomes a sympathetic character on its own. So like, like this, this is really, you know, I kind of, I kind of went into this being like, you know, this is a lot more black and white than Akira. We're following like we've, we've got section nine who are the good cops. And then section six is the evil CIA entity or whatever. But as I'm sitting here mm-hmm. voicing it out, it really is a lot more gray than it is I so took it for. ethically complicated. Yeah, it's so ethically complicated. Yeah. And the puppet master, I have, it's so funny you say, you know, you have sympathy with him. I had such a hard time empathizing with him because there's this. Um, such invasion specifically i keep coming back to the fact that the puppet master just jumps from shell to shell and that the final shell he uses is this female shell that gets completely torn apart and then ultimately the end goal is reproduction it just feels a little violating to me sure so i had a heart i had a really hard time empathizing with the puppet master and and that's completely fair, yeah. Because you know, I was I was sitting here empathizing with the puppet master in one respect, but even as I'm you know really talking it out, really breaking it down with you, it really just becomes like a lot murkier and a lot because you know the 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 whole conceit is the puppet master being like, I became alive. They knew I was alive. And they didn't do anything, which Mm. is, you know, another heavy trope of artificial intelligence science fiction. So, you know, on the one hand, it's this 
it's essentially this trapped and I, I kept using male pronouns when I should have when I should not have been. It's this trapped creature that yeah. lashes out and does the only thing it can to escape and procreate, which is, you know, the the continuation of life, the continuation of existence. It's you know, it's it's a thing that presumably we all want to do um but to well, yeah and go ahead oh sorry no, go, go, ahead. Go, go 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 ahead i think gender is such an interesting aspect because you totally. said i keep i keep using male pronouns and i'm like yeah and this movie does or doesn't break the bechdel test depending on the gender your perceived gender of the puppet master or lack thereof right and because ultimately you're right he he they she it the puppet master is just doing what ultimately a computer program is taught to do which is reproduce it's just taught to get bigger and so the puppet master is just doing that but as humans we project meaning and project patterns and project feeling onto things because that's what we do with art so who's to say what the original intention was but there's this really interesting struggle with what is the puppet master and ultimately is the puppet master good is the puppet master bad who who's to say and it's you know it's become kind of a a frequent question of the genre because at the end of the day it's like good or evil i am a completely unique life form don't i and and i can prove i am a life form don't i deserve if nothing else the right to continue on in some way you know it's 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 been tackled in star trek it's been tackled in um a lot of contemporary sci-fi. You mentioned her. The other thing that it really makes me think of is Ex Machina. Um, oh yeah, it is a or Iron Giant. Iron Giant. Yeah, it's it's a question we keep coming back to because you know we're so fascinated with where we are as a race right now. You know, right now we're we're building robots that look like dogs and can go around and like if you knock it over it knows to get itself back up you know um um i think it was google invented the ai on twitter that was supposed to be like the first genuine artificial intelligence and within 48 hours internet trolls had turned it into this neo-nazi like rage monster these are questions, these are some of the only questions remaining that we cannot answer. And I think that might be why we're so fascinated with working them over in media like we do. The rules with the cyborg-ness are murky. Incredibly, yeah. That's, I think that's the biggest flaw you can pin on Ghost in a Shell. Yeah, and what if they tried to hack into uh, someone's brain and they got a dial-up signal? <laughs> <laughs> Because there's there's a scene where they like hack in this shell that the puppet master has taken over and they're like, oh, we, only a couple more minutes until we really get in there. And I was like, what if they get a dial up signal? Yeah. <laughs> what if you hack into somebody's mind and they've just been, you know, doing uh, bong hits and oh, no. it's you, you, what if what if you try to hack into Oscar from Into the Void? And oh no! Like yeah, you just hack into somebody whose brain is completely melted from the inside anyway. <laughs> oh no! It's very um, we we pick and choose how this works kind of thing because everybody in yeah. this movie has cyborg attachments except for a couple people to the point where it's noteworthy when they uh, they're uh, Bato and. And Motoko are talking to Togusa, being like, so you don't have any cyborg parts? And he's like, nope, just got my revolver. And they're like, interesting. <laughs> it's okay. This, it's this world where, like, you're a relic for not 
doing the technological thing. It's it's you know it's it's the guy who doesn't wear eyeglasses or doesn't it, it better than that it's it's the guy who doesn't have a smartphone in 2019 he's got you know his old oh, yeah. nokia and that just yeah this is all i need i can press these buttons to text and i really don't need to go on the internet anyway it's that level so everyone's of grandpa. yeah it is a little over philosophical though and i found myself as similar with akira really struggling to follow the movie sure and I have to say, there were a couple of parts where I was like, this is inaccessible for the point of being inaccessible. Which, I really gotta ponder that, because I don't think you're wrong. But I feel like it, it's funny to me, we started this because, oh, cult movies, that's a fun genre. And we keep coming back to this this question of, is blank cult? Stephanie is an accessibility in itself cult. Like, cause I, I agree with you. This is a heavy, hard ass movie that you really have to sit down and watch all the way through a couple of times, maybe to really, really understand it. Yeah. And I love that we keep coming back to that question. And the answer we keep coming back to is it's not mass marketable. Right. And this, I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, this is a summer blockbuster and how it would do. And it just wouldn't. Right. I mean, famously, you know, Ghost in the Shell has been readapted a couple of times. And the latest version is the abysmal live action Scarlett Johansson summer blockbuster version of the movie that failed on numerous different levels, one of which being casting Major Motoko Kusanagi as a white woman, but the other being like, like then people, the people who still went and saw the movie anyway were like, yeah, this is like really hard to understand. It can also be argued that DNA is nothing more than a program designed to preserve itself. Life has become more complex in the overwhelming sea of information. Well, the story and plotting doesn't do it any favors. There is no hand-holding. No. You wrote, this is different from buy-in, and you're totally right. It's not, okay, I'm here because I know you're going to pay it off later. It's, It's different than that. It's not set up in a way where the payoff is easy to see or even seeable without really thinking about it. I probably waited a week to write my notes down, maybe two, because I just didn't know what I thought about this movie for such a long time. Sure. No, you're right. Cause I mean, like there, there are so many things I like about the movie, but at the same time, like if you're not actively paying attention or even if like, you're just in the moment, maybe you don't realize that the government officials that come in from section six towards the middle of the movie are the same guys from the beginning or maybe you Mm -hmm. don't you don't realize you know there's a lot of like very very quickly delivered one-off lines that if you miss it it's it's gone and that was a, a key piece of the puzzle that only fits when you have everything but you know all that to say i i do want to talk a little bit about what we did enjoy about the movie itself. I think we're in agreement that the story is, if nothing else, incredibly complex and, and meaty in a couple different ways. But like there, there are still plenty of things I really liked about the movie. I mentioned it before. I Mm -hmm. love the part where this actually just becomes a detective cop story. Yeah. You know, the garbage scene that leads into, you know, a gunfight in a crowded marketplace and, you know, people getting yelling, get down so they can make a shot. People doing, you know, cloaked kung fu in the middle of a empty pool. That's just a beautiful sequence where the guy is getting his ass handed to him. But you never (laughs) see Major kicking his ass. (laughs) You know, I love that. I love how everybody in Section 9 gets a little bit of a moment to prove that like they're a good noble badass. Tokusa gets the part where he's, he's going home, but he's sitting there in his car working it through in his head and being like, wait, 
something's not right. Let mm-hmm. me look at the thing. Let me look at the footage. Oh, hey, we have, like, assassins in the building. Hey, guys, there are assassins. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it out. That was my favorite as he's, like, thinking through it and we get to watch his thought process. That was so brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the the questions that Modigo has are very complex, but Modigo herself, while as stiff as one might expect a cyborg to be like she is very charismatic and she is an interesting heroine to follow there there's a beauty to her you know i've got a really dear friend of mine who adores this movie and Mm. you know she's got opinions of the climactic fight scene which is motoko versus the spider tank which is my other favorite part of the movie absolutely the mm-hmm. idea that she is so desperate, that Motoko is so desperate to know, am I real? Like, really mm-hmm. break that down in your head to be so unsure that I'm even a real person. That she goes to such lengths, she she goes out on her own when she doesn't need to. She she you know she kind of starts breaking the rules to get to the puppet master before all the rest of the government officials do because the puppet master is the only one who can tell her, at least that's what she thinks if she's real or not. And even beyond that, there's the sequence where she, you know, she jumps onto the tank and literally Mm -hmm. rips it apart. And in the same process destroys her own, disposable body but just the action of like you know she literally rips herself apart pushes herself beyond human limits because she needs to know if she's human there is something so fascinating and awesome and compelling about that and it's such an apt metaphor for self-discovery and self-realization of literally tearing yourself apart I mean, I'm not saying that anyone should do... I'm not condoning self-mutilation, but what I'm saying is that's what self-growth and self-motivation and actualization can look like, is it feels like I'm digging in deep to see what's in there. Right. And so it's so beautiful to see her trying to find, okay, I have to figure out what I am. But it's also gruesome and terrifying at the same time. It's such a beautiful scene. It really is. There's there's a lot to break down just in there. You know, there's there's the spider tank that literally shoots a picture of the tree of life. So we have this technological thing that is literally blowing apart the natural former concept of what life was like you know Mm -hmm. it's emblematic of the movie itself it's this you know it's a two Mm -hmm. second shot but it's a a great little metaphor for the entire film i think i love that part yeah it's so cool it's the beginning of things and the end of things right and how at the end really are we all just culminating back to our roots and saying where am i where do i come from yeah And beyond that, like, you know, this movie inspired me to look up what the info capacity of the human brain is. And apparently it's 2.5 million gigabytes, which is a lot. Wow. That's a lot. It's more than I think any computer could hold yet. (laughs) But the idea of, of the electrical impulses that make us up, how much... How much actually is that? And then you think about this future world where we, you know, we literally put that in a hard drive and then we can stick that hard drive in a robot body's head. And then all of a sudden here's, here's Andy (laughs) 2.0. Or Stephanie 2.0. Have fun with all the uh, old Bible school songs and (laughs) words to old commercials and, uh, you know. She's saying you're putting that 2.5 gigabytes to really good use. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. I know all the words to Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. <laughs> I believe it. That'll, you know what? Patreon goal right there. 
<laughs> it's just you singing old Bible songs. <laughs> what um, useless information do you still have in your brain? Um, you know, the useless information that will always be in my brain is an uncanny, like, memory recall for fictional characters. Like, I will always know that Carnage, the Spider-Man villain, his real name is Cletus Cassidy. Cletus Cassidy was, of course, the serial killer cellmate of Eddie Brock, who is Venom, and became Carnage after... Um, an accident where Venom tried to then re reconnect <laughs> with Eddie, you know, it, it back back. I knew who Peter Quill was before guardians of the galaxy was a movie. So, so that's what hey, I've this got. This is helpful. <laughs> this is helpful. You have a podcast about movies. This is extremely helpful. Well, yeah. Helpful for me, but I don't think I'm making <laughs> it into the cyber terrorism security squad unless like, the, the cyber terrorist of tomorrow is, you know, Rocket Drax 187. And they're like, oh, God, we, we, we need somebody with an encyclopedic knowledge of old Marvel comics. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, my robot self could infiltrate Sunday school children and pass convincingly. See, I feel like that has infinitely better tactical applications especially with uh you know certain aspects of the church as as it is <laughs> you know that is fair and children you know they've got those tiny hands they can get into small spaces they could they could hack things break into things oh wait yep i need a robot army exactly well i see there have been some changes while i was gone wanna clue me in where'd you get this body that's the only thing I could find on the black market. It's not my taste, to be honest. It's a little young. <laughs> so, so when 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 we got to the very last scene of the movie and we got Kid Motoko, who is you know not quite Motoko and not quite the puppet master, but something in between, and yet she's in a little kid's body. Which was your first thought? Is oh, she can she can get into all the tiny places now. <laughs> No, my first thought was that's terrifying because yes. she first uses a child voice when she first wakes up. So she's like, hi, I'm here. Hello. And then she descends into her fully grown woman voice and she talks to her friend and says, that will be our password. And you're like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> oh, I love it. It's it's crazy. It space. Terrifying. It's crazy. Android Chinatown. <laughs> I will I will say, you know, like from an animation standpoint, one thing that I think Ghost does better than Akira is I think that it did a lot better of a job at giving people different faces. I feel like Akira, okay. everybody kind of had the same face on different heads. But yeah. along with that, Ghost in the Shell had a lot more just creepy shots of people's eyes than I was okay with. <laughs> It's the ultimate anime eye contact really thing is, where you're like, yeah. oh, I know exactly what that person is thinking because they lit their eyes this way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So <laughs> I, I feel like this is a, a much more loaded question than usual. But Stephanie, did you like Ghost in the Shell? I didn't hate it. Sure. I didn't love it. Which one did you like better, Ghost or Akira? Ooh, good question. I think this one. That's fair. What about you? What about you? Did you like Ghost in the Shell or Akira better? I think the things I like about Akira, I like more than the things about Ghost in the Shell. Like, mm. you know, I'm sitting here being like, there's there's nothing in Ghost that is Kanata's red bike. There is... Yeah. There there is no line from Ghost in the Shell that is equal to Tetsuo Canada. Canada. <laughs> Akira we discussed has, you know, an, an instance where I think the plot completely starts to break down towards the end. Yeah. And that didn't necessarily happen with Ghost. It didn't completely break down. It just got very 
convoluted, you have to pay attention to me E. So that's a great question. I, I guess I'd have, I to, have say to say Akira. Yeah, that makes sense for you because you grew up with Akira too. There is that as well, yeah. Yeah, I think I have to say I feel this exact same about both movies, which is kind of to say, eh, sure. I enjoyed them. And that's completely fine, completely fair. You know, we don't. I don't think these movies are for me. Sure. But there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a, uh, a friend of ours who um, admitted that she's never seen a single Studio Ghibli movie, and my jaw hit the floor. And she was just like, eh, you know, not all things are for all people, but I, I obviously because it's on this show, Ghost is just as cult, I think, if if not maybe a little more than Akira. Yeah, I would agree with that because it's even more, I feel Akira is on more lists of you have to see this movie before you die, whereas this movie is just so buried. Right, and again, this is like, in a, in a weird way, like, like both of these movies are on the list of, like, you know, top five movies you need to see to appreciate the history of anime as a film art form. But, mm-hmm. like, it, it's like you said, Akira is more of kind of a, you need to see this movie before you die. I feel like Ghost in the Shell is a little bit more of, you need to see this movie to understand anime. You know, Motoko, the major, has become more of a cult uh, character than I think anybody from Akira. You know, um, I can remember seeing in in magazines, you know, pictures and, and, you know, there's a lot more toys made of her. And maybe that has to do again with, you know, the robot boobs. Uh, probably does. <laughs> but, you know, both of these... Um, inspired huge followings they were both flops in japan in theaters but then found new life in american home video ghost in the shell has Mm -hmm. a much bigger like catalog to it than akira with akira you basically just have the movie and the anime or uh, the the movie and the manga with ghost in the shell you have the manga two movies two sequels two remakes like people keep coming back to this story and expanding it and telling it a little bit more. But like I said, there's nothing as infamous as Canada's motorcycle. Yeah. So all that to say, it, I, I, I think it's cult, but maybe not as cult as Akira in some ways, maybe more cult than Akira tied, yeah. tied inexplicably to Akira <laughs> either way. <laughs> They're not sisters, they're cousins who maybe look a lot alike. I accept that. I love that. I love that analogy. Uh-huh. Thanks. <laughs> so in this movie, um, were you still able to find uh, a quote? I was, but it's not a funny quote. It's just a, this quote was said as a tossaway line. And it ultimately became the kind of thesis for the movie. Sure. Which was over-specialized and new breed and weakness. And then here you have these over-specialized robots who are just so easy to hack. Yeah. So. No, I I like that. Um, Yeah. Mine, I think it was from the same exact scene. Um, There's the bit where Motoko's like getting ready and Togus is driving her and they're talking. And at one point she's arming herself up and Togus looks behind and he's like, what's that? And she's like, your standard issue, big gun. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just, I love the snarkiness. I love, I love a good BFG. Um, Speaking of quotes. So my Oscar for this movie is an unexpected quote from the Bible. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. The heavy, heavy religious connections at the end of the movie. Yeah, there's unexpectedly a tossaway of when I was a child, my speech, feeling, and thinking were all those of a child. And as I've alluded to earlier in this podcast, I was raised religiously. And so I was like, wait, why does that sound familiar? That's Ecclesiastes. <laughs> wait, I know this. It's Ecclesiastes. And then I looked it up later. It's First Corinthians 13. It's just later in First Corinthians 13, after the part that everyone knows, it's like right after that. 
I just I I do just adore that the the image of you sitting there watching this shooty shooty robot philosophy movie and just all of a sudden tilting your head and being like, wait. I know this Bible Wait. verse. <laughs> I know this. Where is it from? Because <laughs> I, I think they say it's from the Bible. I don't remember now. But if even if they do, they don't say it until like after the quote. So I just I get joy of the idea of, of you like cluing them on that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Head tilt. This is from the Bible. I wish I could do that with other sacred texts, though. Like I wish I could. Be oh, like, sure. Huh. This is from the Bhavad Gita, but alas, my this religious is, upbringing only. This is from the Bardo Thoskril. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would love that. So I just have to disappear for like nine years and indoctrinate myself with thorough knowledge of all of the world's other religions. Well, we'll, we'll take a hiatus for you. <laughs> Cool. See you in nine years. Yay, bye. bye. <laughs> um, so my Oscar for Ghost in the Shell uh, goes to Best Sidekicks, and you nice. know, I've, I've talked about them a, a, a little bit, but honestly, Bato and Togusa are just wonderful characters. They they really provide a lot of humanity to the movie. Hey, mm. um, but especially Bato. Bato is just best boy. I love that he he yeah. clearly, like maybe not even sexually, is in love with the major, but is just like, I am always going to be here for you. I am always going to take care of you. I will, you know, save you. I will break the law for you. I will be your confidant and. I can really relate to that guy. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. You know what else I can Aww. relate to? Can you relate to Kevin Bacon? I think we all can relate to Kevin Bacon. In six degrees or fewer. Exactly. <laughs> Would you like to go first? Yeah, you know, you you had a little note on our 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 bacon thing that this is hard mode, and I completely agree. This is hard mode. You know, it, it seems like really with any with any animated movie, especially since aside from Yellow Submarine, or even including Yellow Submarine, you know, we keep watching these movies that don't have uh, major American voice actors. Mm-hmm. I was able to do it. Um, speaking of best boy Beto, uh, in the American um, dub, which we didn't ask about this, but did you go sub or dub? I could only find dub. Okay, I also went in the dub this time because I just I I don't know when it's when it's anime. I want to hear it in English. When it's like an mm. actual foreign film, I have to watch the subtitles. But anyway, um, best, but I digress. Best Boy Bato was voiced by Richard Epcar. Richard Epcar was in a movie called Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Michael McKean. And Michael McKean was in The Big Picture with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> we used the same. Are you kidding Not me? Not the same. No, no, no. Not the same end move. Okay. I would but I love also... that, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be amazing. Um, but I also used Bateau through Richard Epcar and Memoirs of an Invisible Man. But who's also in it is Stephen uh, Tobolowski, who plays um, a character in Murder in the First with Kevin Bacon. All right. So, so listeners, if you want to do this without Richard Epcar, uh, send us your, your bacon and we will send you a Tetsuo Kuzukabe shirt that we are still waiting to get that first print of. <laughs> oh, yeah, because I've totally designed it, and we actually totally have a Patreon. We don't even have a Patreon. I've, you, I, I've totally designed it, but it is the, like, distribution and all that other Patreon-y stuff that I just don't know if we're ever going to actually do, but it's fun to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, a 
podcast bingo card out there where it's like beginners podcast all the things that they do and one of the you know squares like you should cut that no i'm not gonna cut it cuts it anyway or includes it anyway and then one of them is talks about patreon doesn't have a patreon yep and i was like oh no it's us i feel seen (laughs) well it's just like i don't know like my thing is like if, if you're willing to give us even a dollar message us on cult fiction and tell us you're willing to give us a dollar a month because you enjoy our content we'll be humbled and honored and if i can get like five people to actually do that then it maybe won't be patreon because they kind of jerk people around but we will find some way to then actually (laughs) happily take your money and use it to increase the production content and quality of this show but until then it's just fun to you know goof that we're gonna make a patreon (laughs) i will buy you a carl's jr burger for your patreon goal there we go got a second one in absolutely But no, I will say I have 100% designed the Tetsuo Kusakabe shirt. I have looked at how much it would actually be to print and distribute. Um, the key is bulk. Like, like to make a single shirt costs like 200 bucks or something. But if you order mm-hmm. 200 shirts, then it's like... It's still like 160 bucks, but it winds up being like less than a dollar a shirt, you know? So... So if you really want that Tetsuo Kusagabe shirt, what I'm saying is it's possible I can get it to you, dear listener. Cool, cool, cool. I like that we're talking about this for the first time on air. Awesome. Yeah, you know. (laughs) All right. So shall we find out what we're watching next? Absolutely. So... Every episode, we uh, we put our fate into the hands of the Hollywood crypt, for better or for worse. And sometimes it makes us watch Blood for Dracula, and sometimes it makes us watch three dystopian 80s sci-fi movies in a row. I'm going to yep. see if we can break that chain for this next one, but we do God, have 314 movies. Come again? Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. 311. <laughs> We're working our way oh. down. <laughs> so much better. <laughs> so much better. And we're going to see if we can get out of the 80s for this next one. So. Do, 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 do. And we have number 45. Number 45 is not Anaconda. Uh-oh. Number 45 is Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> what? No! <laughs> so, is that better or worse, okay. Stephanie? Well, I've already seen Snakes on a Plane, so I uh I guess I guess that's better. I guess. <laughs> Hey, we got out of the 80s like I wanted. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) This, like, God, I just remember what a thing, what a landmark this friggin' movie was back in the day. Oh, my God. The logo is literally a plane with snakes wrapping around it. You know that, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. Trust me, I know. (laughs) I went to go see this movie in theaters. Oh, that's going to be a story in and of itself. I, I'm i dead serious. <laughs> was... I'm going to want a, all everything you can recollect about seeing this movie in theaters <laughs> for the next episode. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, so you've seen this, yes? Oh, yeah. Okay, all right, just making sure. You've seen it more than once. To my shame, I think I've seen this like twice. Well, now you're going to see it a third time. Sweet. All right, well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. 
If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at cultfictioncast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We would also love a four-star review. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when, say it with me now, we've had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane um, as we watch... 2006's god that doesn't even sound right um as we watch 2006's snakes on a plane Uh. on voodoo (laughs) at time of recording (laughs) for stephanie johnson as she weeps in the corner i've been andy bowell had to burp um (laughs) thank you for letting me know what that was yeah you know (laughs) carl's jr for when you want to burp on your podcast got it